0: Hello and welcome to episode 24. It's now 2024. This is Post Poet Pop. I'm your host L. Happy January, as much as it may be. Today's episode is going to feature the work of the poet Douglas Piccinini. Specifically, Douglas's most recent book, Beautiful, Safe, and Free, that was published by New Books last year. Douglas and I go way back. I've wanted to talk to Douglas about his work for quite some time, I've written reviews of Douglas's work prior, specifically his book Storybook uh, that was published by the Cultural Society. He also had a chapbook published called A Western Sky on Gray and Ghost, who published my own work. So, just a full disclaimer of how deep this nepotism goes. <laughs> but what I'd like to do is share some lines from a poem that you will not hear Douglas read today. That is in his book Beautiful, Safe, and Free. That poem is called In America. It begins: I imagine myself through desire to numb myself. I'm brutal at first, then friendly, coached by a system, released into a crowd. I drink from the invisible order that sustains me. You must live by loss of desire." Those are lines in sequence from Douglas's poem in America. I read those lines to highlight two things. The depth of Douglas's approach to abstract language in his poetics, and also to highlight something that we can no longer ignore Something that I feel like I, I can't even ignore as much as I'd like to Just to present you a simple conversation via podcast episode And that is the genocide of Palestinians That is rapidly unfolding and has been since October It's getting impossible not to say ceasefire now In every single thing that we say Like I want to attend like my work meetings and just be like Yeah, hey, good morning everyone, ceasefire now And just keep saying it Because I don't know, what else can we do? I have been calling my own locally elected officials here in Kentucky since November, maybe October. I've lost count of how many voicemails I've left from Mitch McConnell, and that's nothing. There is no hero work here unless you're on the ground, and yet we can't get on the ground. So while none of this episode and none of Douglas's work is directly at all tied... To Israeli state-sanctioned fascism backed by the United States government and the British government. It does allude to certain factors through its poetics to what it means to live within certain systems to not only be powerless but to also take a look at your own self through that system. So I congratulate Douglas on doing that. He asked me how I receive his work, and that is certainly one way. There's a multiplicity of ways how I receive this work of this book. So I'm very happy and honored to present a conversation that I had with Douglas Piccinini over the holiday break and offer you some music, maybe a little bit of a dream to take a slight reprieve from the world as it is. Thanks for listening.
1: Is it, um, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a comedian Ted Alexandro who says uh, there's a reason that you're you know asleep when you're dreaming is because you you know your dreams are boring,
0: but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like ba- Balzac has that yeah, quote, yeah. Uh, you know, only a bore tells his dreams.
1: I do dream, unlike unlike you, I guess, and and <laughs> um, <laughs> no. but when the I guess the worst dreams, just generally speaking, are the ones that kind of. Bleed into your your day in a way that um, have a kind of unintended consequences of you know you have a a dream about someone that you're close with you end up being mad at them for something that they did in a dream which is something you're having this kind of fantastical scenario about your you know your own mind essentially, is creating this scenario where you're mad at this person in the dream and then you wake up and then maybe you're lying next to your partner. And you feel some sense of whatever towards them because it happened in the dream, as a way of revealing who you are and how you are. Um, that's yeah. that's always bizarre when you wake up from a dream, and the residue is with you for the day, or or you even think about it throughout the course of your life. I have this profound memory of being, you know, seven or eight years old, and uh, having what didn't seem like a nightmare, but I guess is kind of nightmarish. In which I'm at a bar, and it's a very like kind of like country seeming bar with wood paneling everywhere, and there's light streaming through the windows, and you know the person that i'm or the thing that I'm sitting next to is a a giant fly. Um, and I don't know why, but i this is like a dream I think about all the time, um, and it's like maybe a 15 second clip in my you know the cinema of my brain.
0: It's not very mm-hmm. interesting, but I'm not sure know.
1: why it takes. I'm not sure why it takes up space in my head, but it does.
0: I I shouldn't say I don't dream. I have nightmares, and um, sometimes they're easy and sometimes they're not. But I think what's interesting about a dream is you know uh, the the guy that was Gil Deleuze's mentor, uh, Henri Bergson. Mm-hmm. He and I, I I love how he kind of gets at this i idea that a dream is actually trying to free itself, but there's no like abolitionism of the lack of reality. So basically a dream's trying to like climb out of its depth, but it can't. And it's kind of like using the human being to do that. And that's probably a misreading of Bergson, but you know, (laughs) I I think it's kind of getting at what you're experiencing.
1: In terms of this, like, like a dreamscape, or the ability to have these kind of things that are both distant and near at the same time, so for example, a, a dream that I had when I was a kid is still kind of readily accessible to me uh in a previous book, not um called Storybook, which is a novella oh, yeah. of first chapters that's the architecture for that book, and so much as thinking about how we can hold all these. Disparate ideas, memories, events, and something that happened to you or maybe to someone else. Those two things can hang right next to each other with no space between them. You can think back to your earliest memory and be in the present and be able to ostensibly be in that past and the present at the same time. You could think about something you're going to do tomorrow and still be in its, you know, the present but in the future also these things are compulsions into trying to understand my reality or some sense of shared reality better
2: you think if you break something might bring now on to 20 years, oh yeah, and all you'll get is just 20 years old, you know you will, well, I nothing mean your burden will be too much for your shoulders, and reality will cause your fantasies to die, cause your fantasies to die. Were brought up in the Christmas spirit You know you were. Couldn't hardly wait for the days to near it Oh yeah And they think your country is a great democracy You know you do Well they just killed your freeze for helping folks like me And reality will cause your fantasies Oh, your fantasy
3: As if I am someone else. So much depends on the authority of reality to guide me in the logic of circumstance. To live comfortably yet desire differently.
0: I I love that you got the little nod to Mr. Patterson himself. (laughs) Um, But also I felt like this poem kind of brought everything full circle. You know, there there's this conceptual separation between being alive and being in a state of desire. So maybe we'll dive into that. Tell me about
1: that. Sure. And I, and I think that I I keep coming back to this idea, this car passing by. See. I love it. I it, keep- just, it just reminds <laughs> me of uh, you know, what doesn't like happen is, here. Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's like... Um, I was like, this will be a quiet place. There's going to be nobody here. <laughs> it's raining on, like, what's today? Uh, Thursday? Yeah. Um, the Thursday between Christmas and New Year's, this is, like, there's no one out on the path. And then, like, as soon as I get there, there's, like, a boy and his grandfather inspecting the construction of this covered bridge. Um, there's, like, people <laughs> walking their dogs. There's, like, Amazon deliveries going over it. Like, and, like, literally, this is, like, a, a bridge that leads to a dead end. Um. So, in the in the Williams poem, there's so much going on beyond the superficial, and I think in my kind of mutation of that that work, it kind of began by reciting the red red wheelbarrow in my you know in my head over and over again on a bike ride, and after doing that for I don't I can't recall the the duration of the time, but this poem just kind of like sprung from itself, and I immediately wrote it down. Um. As soon as I got pen and paper, and the thing that was like the linchpin of it was the f- the phrase "a logic of circumstance," um, and I keep thinking about that through all aspects of my life in terms of what are the things that are um, pushing on you, pressing on you. What are you pressing on? Like that make you do certain things with your knowledge and without your knowledge. Like how do you be- how do you behave? In an environment, what's the what's the information that helps you or hurts you in your decision making process? What's the logic of the circumstance you're in? And it, maybe it's you know cheesy to think about to say it like that, as though you know your surroundings, who you are, and where you are, kind of inform the outcomes of your of your day to day, of your year to year, of your life. I guess there's a there's there's a book called Freakonomics, which you may have heard of. Oh yeah, of course. Which you know talks about one of the the, the most um, you know impactful indicators of success in a person's life, a child's life, can be their uh, their area code of where they are yeah. and what, yeah. what what they have access to and, and um, what their environs are like, apart from their genetic makeup you know what i mean which have a profound influence on that as well so that's so like you know
0: yeah i think it's interesting like what the phrase logic of circumstance and then living in this world where you know you've got historicity that becomes still in certain data points or certain you know like the ten thousand hours thing or like you're saying with the area code thing and <clears throat> and it makes it feel like those things are <laughs> undeniable i think that's interesting in terms of the title of your poem like as if i am someone else it's like you can look at a historicity of data as if you are someone else. And you can also be taken aback by by a notion that some sort of historicity of data actually applies directly to you. Um, you want, yeah, yeah, and yep. there's there's an
1: element of desire baked into that whole process of, of wanting to have the empathy um, to put yourself in the position of the person who's experiencing the joy, the person who's experiencing the pain, the person who's experiencing... Mm-hmm. Uh, the success, the loss, the grief, the, the elation. There's a certain amount of research that can tell you how to react like an actor um, can, can you know, become like a, a method actor and fully immerse themselves in in the emotional, you know, radiation of that personhood or event or anything. I, but I, I think that there's some degree of fallacy in, in that, but as also a high degree of, you know, admiration in wanting to be able to, to get there and go there mm. to, to feel those things
4: Jonah. I feel like I'm losing my focus. I feel like I'm losing my patience. I feel like my thoughts in the basement. Feel like I feel like you're miseducated. Feel like I don't wanna be bothered. I feel like you may be the problem. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. Fuck the world. The world is ended. I'm done pretending and fuck you if you get offended. I feel like friends been overrated. I feel like the family been faking. I feel like the feelings are changing. Feel like my thought of compromise is jaded. Feel like you wanna screw and that's how I made it. Feel like I ain't feeling you all. Feel like removing myself. No feelings involved. I feel for you. Been in the field for you, it's real for you, right? Shit, I feel like it. ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying. Prayin'. I feel niggas been out of pocket. I feel niggas tapping their pockets. I Feel like debating on who the greatest can stop it I am legend, I feel like all of y'all is peasants I feel like all of y'all is desperate I feel like all it take is a second to feel like Mike Jordan, whenever holding a real mic I ain't feeling your presence Feel like I'ma learn you a lesson Feel like only me and the music though I feel like you're feeling mutual. I feel like the enemy you should know Feel like the feeling of no hope The feeling of bad dope A quarter house manipulated from soap to feeling, the feeling of false freedom A false freedom The poison To fill them up in a prison I feel like it's just me, look I feel like I can't breathe, look I feel like I can't sleep, look, I feel heartless, often, often, feeling the of falling, I'm falling apart with darkest hours, lost in, feeling the void of being employed, with are streets is talking, filling the blanks with coffins, fill up the banks with dollars, fill up the graves with fathers, fill up the babies with bullshit, internet blogs and pulpit, filling with gossip, I feel like there's gotta be the feeling where Pac was, the feeling of an apocalypse happening, but nothing is awkward, the feeling won't prosper, the feeling is toxic, I feel like I'm boxing demons, monsters, false prophets, scheming, sponsors, industry promises, niggas, bitches, hunkies, crackers, comics. Church religion, token blacks and bondage, lost some physics, a penis served concert. Fuck your feelings, I mean there's four imposters. I can feel it, the phoenix Shore to watch watches. I can feel it, the dream is more than process. I can build a regime that forms a likeness. I can feel it, the scream that haunts our logic. I feel like say so, I feel like take some, I feel like skating on, I feel like waiting for Maybe them. it's You're too late, late for them. Them. I feel like the whole world want me to pray for him But who the fuck praying for me? Ain't nobody praying for me.
0: This overarching voice and then that voice has a tone and i feel that the tone is cutting and critical but without ever being overt and it's always engaging in both like let's take a look at uh, mm-hmm. the grand design aspects um not only of reality but the current state of affairs and then there's this mockery too and then you're doing that not only with the register and even devices but it kind of it kind of comes together to create this model of revolt.
1: I was watching a um, documentary uh, um, on Žižek, so there might be things that are lifted from his kind of emphatic monologues on philosophy and culture. Um, but this is to say there is, I mean, what I might feel is an attempt to write a better version of the same poem every time, um, in this book or just in general, I feel like I'm always grappling with the same issues of impermanence and whether that's a, uh, the subjugation of a position, who you think you are, how you think you are, what you think you're doing constantly. That's the chatter in my head around, um, how I'm making a poem an investigation into the conditions of production, not this, you know, uh, yeah. How things are made and can you reproduce those things? So I'm like trying to, in some ways, discover the meaning of my own poems by writing my own poems.
0: Did you, have any, did you have any text with you, like as you were writing the poems? Kind of always there?
1: It might sound corny, but I kind of had a breakthrough with reading Rumi in a way that was both celebratory and suspicious of life at the same time. There's like an omnibus collection of of uh, Rumi's works that I kind of dip into on the regular, which I think is translated by Coleman Barks. There, there are there are turns of phrases that surprise me and make me kind of step back into wishing I were a better writer in that sense, where I could kind of articulate the way that Coleman Barks is interpreting Rumi in the in the, in some of those poems. Let me try. Because I mean,
0: it doesn't, it doesn't feel like uh, you. It's funny you're using the word interpret, and it's like interpret multiple translations, or interpret yeah. while translating, and like those two, those two things could be seen synonymously, but they could also be seen like complementarily. You don't hear a lot of poets like in our vein mention Rumi. I think that um, it's not like a a crack that
1: goes into the eternal somewhere in in um in Rumi's works that I find appealing where when you you can read them today and feel as if they were possibly written a couple years ago but then you realize they're written hundreds of years ago maybe this is my own predilection for not wanting to write overtly topical poems and so much as like i'm going to write my my poem on you know what's been happening in the news for the last six months by you know naming all the aggressors, etc. But I'll instead translate that emotional feeling into writing, which might take the shape of something that seems much more compressed um, and complicated than just a summary of the situation.
5: Last night, my beloved was like the moon. So beautiful Last night, my beloved Was like the moon So beautiful Last night, my beloved Was like the moon So beautiful So beautiful like the moon So beautiful like the moon So beautiful like the moon Even brighter than the sun
3: Intero As if. Stuttering a percentage of glyphs inflates you like a flower in a lovable number zeroed whole round fit into you in what like a splinter milt from division, like an anthem jerks up to follow you everywhere, in every mask you slip on to make meaning.
0: This idea of simultaneously questioning and exclaiming and how that is both like your process of the poetics, but it's also like the performative mode itself, like stripping meaning down to its core may require performative mode.
1: Someone's fantasies don't have to be made public in order to be real or identifiable. Um, So it's like if you're... Let's say, for example, your your sexual fantasies are your own. Your your search engine results for what you look about when you when you're, you have a fear or um, a curiosity. If you're searching for something, those are your own. That's your own. You know what I mean? You don't. Have, hmm. But those become identifiable markings of who you are as a consumer. And this is maybe to go back. I hope I'm answering the question without being too insane about like thinking about mask as being a specialized category of how you can be identified socially, culturally, ideologically, um, linguistically. Uh, So the things that you would slip on to make meaning, possible tropes that you engage with that you don't realize you're even doing, but you're Mm -hmm. making meaning by accident just by, you know... Where you're from, how you speak, what you like to eat, what you don't like to eat, who you consider your friends, who you consider your enemies, you know, who you fall in love with, you know, who you would like to engage with, activities with, versus who you wouldn't. Those are all aspects of sometimes the meanings that we make that we are sometimes aware of and sometimes unaware of and sometimes discovering Somewhere in between.
3: Preventable feeling. No agency for, for who you are, but who you say you are. A place in being a numbered feeling for how I feel brings this missive of non-promise for a rigged thing to feel a why type of inflection and a science of detection. As a day takes forgotten ways to inform you, Deleted thing as a crisis brings a pattern of swept feeling for the ceiling, the crossbeam, the nailhead I've been studying commits myself to existence to convince to conceive to conceive another way
0: You've got this like hinged play on on agency. this agency is personhood. It's intervention. And then also it's like, we both know this, like it's like a consultancy that one organization well, there's, there's hires no, there's another. There's no advocate for for who you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like if I, I can't, I can't, I mean, now there is personal branding. We are by far and away in the age of, of, of personal branding. And so mm-hmm. I definitely couldn't not think about that as well, that it, it became a, a condemnation of, overarching register and then also like a foregone reality i mean
1: yeah that's spot on it's it's something that i struggle with ideologically and it might seem too kind of heavy to say on the daily but yeah i think about that all the time it consumes consumes my thoughts and that's why i think you know it definitely informs the book and kind of maybe adds a uh, biting irony to the title of you know, beautiful, safe, and free. Those are you know things that are ideals. Uh, yeah, in some and it, ways. it's a good
0: it's a good moment to talk about the title because the general energy and feeling overall of this book, especially like pushing away and up against that title, you're acknowledging and you're and you're attacking, but you know that the practice of these these traces of relations is really the glue <laughs> of what's holding everything together
1: right well what's the the way of of codifying the unknown i guess is religion so maybe it's that when we the more we talk about the situation the more we give it highlights the more we give it some sense of you know sculptural relief the easier it is to see the easier it is to understand and in the sense of capitalism we create a marketplace for it um in so much as there's an infinite amount of categories to kind of be exploited and the desire to be the most fully realized version of who, who you are um, and, and have that version of yourself um, not be uh, imposing or imposed upon by anyone else. So it's like it's, it's, a, it's a request for, um, for freedom in some ways, um, personal freedom and social freedom.
2: Why you book clear I spent all this time Trying to play now I fought my way here See, I've been having me a real hard time But it feels so nice to know I'm gonna be alright so I just kept dreaming yeah I just kept dreaming it wasn't very hard Nobody on my side See, I've been having me a real good time And it feels so nice To know I'm gonna be
3: What if one loves something perceived as ordinary? And what if to dream, I mean to desire, a shift in taste? And what if, by a life of crime, I mean living behind a shield of an action?
0: And what if to dream, I mean to desire a shift in taste. We're going to associate that with taste in terms of what you like as a reflection of who you are, Mm -hmm. as opposed to things that happen on the tongue, which is a myriad of things.
1: But it's definitely a playful um, attempt to kind of subvert, I guess, uh, on a really basic level, people often use the term vanilla to mean ordinary. Um, can, we, can we agree that that's a, a common thing to say?
0: I think so. I mean, I associate yeah. it with whiteness as well, like literally, right. like white people.
1: Yeah, and then the, the uh, very nature of just vanilla being a, a flower, it's an orchid, that is, is not really very accessible. Globalization has made vanilla you know, common enough to have in anyone's pantry. This is one of the things that is interesting about the way in which a system can absorb uh, information, even if information is uh, a plant or a taste, or um, it, it becomes insidious, and then it becomes common, and then it becomes they're like stand-ins for other things. So you stand a stand-in for whiteness, a stand-in for the ordinary, but it kind of erases the actual interesting aspect of vanilla that it's a uh, the seed pods of of a of an orchid, which you probably wouldn't think of. No,
0: never. I mean, I never, I know that that's it, but I never think of it. Although I do recall having this conversation with a baker uh, here in Louisville several years ago, who's like very serious about, uh, about baking. And when there was about to be like a global vanilla shortage. Mm, Yeah. And (laughs) you know, he was just like, people don't understand what this will do to everything we eat. Kind of like this, natural esotericity that you're talking about that in order to even get the vanilla, it's by far and away, not a vanilla process. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well that, or, or even the way in which something becomes ordinary, how does something become ordinary? Because there was probably a point in time where it was impossible to get, um, a pineapple in the middle of winter until, until it isn't how things that were once, Unapproachably impossible, suddenly become common through exchanges of knowledge or repetitions of knowledge. The way something becomes mimetic or it becomes a you know a meme and cultural, where some hmm. suddenly everyone it's on the, it's on everyone's tongue.
0: But you're getting at the fact that like everything can be shifted into a state of ordinary.
1: Sure, in terms of uh, how a campaign is successful or not successful, and it's not. I mean, campaign sounds like such a, a serious word for the way in which ideology kind of grafts itself into different parts of communities or or nations or wherever, where suddenly yeah. something is is just the the air you breathe and you forget that, you know, like a generation or two ago that didn't exist. Take for example, you know, the social social and cultural dependency on iPhones. Then you try to imagine what your life is like without that access to information, access to communication, the success of your of your work dependent on a three by five little tiny screen in your pocket you know as people that i'm mean, i'm 41 i came up of age before, like just as the just as the commercialized sense of the internet was becoming available to people in the 90s there's a point in in my own timeline where it's like oh i remember what it was like before the internet whereas my son who's 18 months old is a digital native and he'll never understand what that world might have been like yeah. except through you know, you know, potentially reading a book or an online article about <laughs> what that might have been like. So we have to kind of put ourselves in a, a place of uh, imagination.
3: Daydreamer. How did important parts of not knowing feature prominently, then recede into fictional snow? If uh, if I make a mistake, if you make a mistake, is there one sentimental journey we can take together? If old habits melt like a single snow-pissed thought losing its color of sun and sun.
0: I want to ask you if you're a daydreamer.
1: I, th- In the sense that I'm um, maybe... In one place physically in another place mentally, then sure, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think I I often think back of when I was in maybe 15 or 16 freshman in high school and reading The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which is a short story, just that there can be more going on in someone's mental functions than you can perceive Mm -hmm. as a you know, if you're in a room with someone, they could be totally somewhere else. And you have maybe some ways of knowing, but also no ways of knowing what they're thinking about in those scenarios.
0: As I thought about the way in which the work is situated, but also the concept of a daydreamer, it made me think that daydreaming can become cinematic. And I'm saying that because you brought up Walter Mitty. I didn't even think about that. But <laughs> yeah. clearly, there's a cinema to Walter Mitty. Yeah, two movies of it, and then that made me think of how a fear of death is also cinematic. You play it out. You basically oh, sure. make okay. the movie of this possible
1: worst case scenarios. Exactly, um, uh, and it, it becomes part of part of your reality. It's not. It's no longer just a fictionalization of. Well, what if I, you know, fall down the steps and. You break my neck, right? If yeah, you, exactly. If you, yeah. I don't know. I like that's what you go to, <laughs> like, good, like fall down the steps. Death, it's very 1980s. that's something, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> if you think of that enough or if you have those uh, that pathos in, in, in those, that thinking, then it becomes mm-hmm. a, a part of who you are and how you think. The, it's the repetitions of that, I guess, and what you're saying. So if like you constantly think about the what ifs of, of uh, you know, I'm afraid of dying, so I think about, you know, how best to drive on the road in my car. I think about what to eat um, that won't, you know, negatively impact my body. Um, I think about where to live in terms of, like, the environmental concerns of, you know, am I, am I living near some kind of toxicity? Those shape your personality and how you think about the world in some ways, even if those are kind of background cinematic scenarios that are playing out in your head. <laughs>
0: three books are you currently reading or have you recently read? So I'm, re- so I'm actually I ha-
1: going through, I just started the other day, uh, Three Uses of the Knife um, oh. by David, David Mamet it's, um, oh. on on the nature and purpose of drama. He's a fascinating person, possibly controversial in his political engagements or interesting to think about. That being said, I, I often read things that I possibly don't align with whatever personal values I might have. Just to get mm-hmm. a better understanding of of the way the world works, I guess you know to know your enemy or to know your uh <laughs> know, <laughs> position know how other people are thinking about maybe the same the same issues that you are thinking about um so mm-hmm. that said, um a book that I'm kind of like paging through slowly is alan greenspan's the age of turbulence um also its own thing, <laughs> you know I'm kind of fascinated with cycles of the economy and trying to get a better understanding of how certain actors shape how the world works. And to yeah. hear them speak about it, I guess, in their own their own words or their own uh, how those words are sculpted by their you know uh, assistance as they write this books or w- write their books is, is um, kind of interesting to me. And just in getting an overview of the same political players that have been involved with how things work in our country for the last 50 years or so. You get to see the same names in different administrations um doing the same insidious kind of work as politicians or or parapolitical actors okay um, and then something I've been doing lately um is rereading books that I read during maybe my teenage or early twenty years no you know books that I thought were important to me
0: as a kid that, you know, just to see how they hold up. Next question. What is your favorite sandwich to make for yourself?
1: I'm going to like go out on a limb here and say that I believe that pizza is kind of like an open face sandwich. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love pizza. It's, it's, you know, bread, sauce and cheese, bread, tomatoes and cheese. Otherwise it would probably be like um, uh, a grilled cheese and tomato. grilled cheese
0: and tomato nice yeah now i will say the pizza as sandwich argument you know this show is very very friendly you know very progressive (laughs) so we're gonna let that in and let it slide you're we're let it slide (laughs) you're the first (laughs) person to answer it that way and i appreciate that and being with your northeastern jersey italian heritage it just makes sense
1: I'll see everyone in the comments on that a pizza. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
0: Go for yeah. um Next, wine, beer, a type of liquor, or something else? My go-to is always coffee.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, okay. like, I would say in the last decade or so, really getting deeper into like coffee experience. And that sounds like, I come off sounding like a jerk saying, the coffee experience? But I guess what I mean like that is like, that's really the only beverage that I consume apart from water every day. I invest probably way too much time thinking about when's my next cup of coffee. I sound like an addict. When's my next coffee? You know, did I get my order in on time to get beans? If I'm getting beans delivered to my, you know, my door or something like that. Or um, do you do that? Yes, I do. Oh, wow. So yeah. And I, and like just, uh, you know, discussing, Bean to water ratios, and you know why I use a scale to measure out my coffee in the morning instead of spoon, you know, a scoop or something like that. If uh, my family members know I'm, I'm kind of uh, neurotic about.
0: I, I haven't fully crossed over to that threshold, but I will say, in my house we have, and yeah, this is gonna make, this is gonna make the Marxist in me seem like a poser. But I've got an espresso maker. I've got a Bialetti and I've got a, a pour over, you know, handheld drip filter. Um, yeah. Now, one thing we always go back and forth about, and maybe you can help me with this, is when you're doing a pour over for, let's say, two people, mm-hmm. are you doing, are you measuring the coffee that goes into the filter, like five tablespoons, for instance? I'm or doing it
1: by weight. So, I'm doing for, weight. you know, oh. yeah. So, for every... um uh, 18 to one. So if I'm making like a 350 gram, um, output pour over, I'll put in like, uh, 21 grams of, of coffee. So it's like water to coffee wow. is like, like 17 or 18 to one. I really like third place culture or like, and what yeah. I mean by that is like, you know, having a coffee shop to go and kind of commune with others, um, uh, you know, even if you're not necessarily, you know, talking with them, you're in the same space. You're doing something. It's a place to go that's not your home and it's not your office or your job or whatever your workplace is, um, where you can just experience life. And it's, it's something that um, maybe in the digital age has eroded a little bit as more people bring their electronic devices into coffee shops and like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm guilty of it too, or I set up my laptop and or you know i'm on my phone working or something like that you know i try to enjoy it and like i drink from like tiny teacups which is probably more than i love that people shit want to I, know love about good, my, I love my, my coffee have, cup.
0: yeah i'm not drinking out of like a 32 ounce um <laughs> yeti this is your uh personalized question you've worked in and you've even owned a restaurant that's right yeah
1: well, it was more like a pop-up restaurant. So not, a, not in terms oh, of... that's a, right. Y'all did like I'd be, pop-up dinners. I'd be, yeah, I'd be um, remiss by saying it was a brick and mortar, but for all intents and purposes uh, operated as a, uh, you know, a full service uh, catering and event company.
0: Okay. Let me clarify. You've sure. worked in and owned full-on catering company. But what I'm interested in is what is the best meal you've ever had that you had to have at a restaurant or, you know, made for you?
1: That's a good question. That's stumping me.
0: And I'm going to revert back to
1: something that's probably not a, that interesting of an answer. The best meals that I've had are almost like the food becomes more of um, a background to the company of, of Mm -hmm. who I'm with or what I'm doing. So, I've eaten at restaurants that have where I've spent my entire week's salary <laughs> going there. Like, let's say, you know, uh, Del Posto in, in, in uh, New York, which is closed now. And I've done a lot of traveling throughout the United States and Western Europe, trying as much food as I possibly can to curiously Epicurean, I guess. Yeah. But I think the most one of the most memorable meals that I think about all the time, you know, in a bizarre way. As I was traveling through Italy with my family when I was um, in my early 20s and we stopped at a a gas station like somewhere outside of Rome and I got a um, prosciutto mozzarella uh, panino and it was like, I think about that sandwich as as being such a bizarre, it was so good. I remember it and (laughs) I kept thinking to myself, "What? Like this is like a cultural difference of what you can get at a gas station in Italy. Versus you know, maybe what you can get at gas. This was like probably 20 years ago too. so maybe maybe gas stations in the United States have upped their game in terms of what you can what you can eat there. but um, it was just a it was a strange experience.
0: Last of the top five. you get one album to listen to for the rest of your life. What are you going to listen to?
1: This is probably an album that I've listened to um, probably the most throughout my lifetime. It's uh, Brian Eno's music for airports.